Well, this morning we're going to start a new little mini-series, if you will, called Faith in Action. And if you were here with us last summer, we did our, our Nehemiah study, and we talked a lot about what it looks like to be called by God, to be passionate about the kingdom of God, about restoration, about renewal, about the power of God to work in our lives to impact the world around us. And what we're going to do this fall is we're going to look at the lives of some people who really were able to embody that spirit in different kinds of ways. And as we look at them, we'll be able to see some things that we can aspire to, some pitfalls to watch out for, but more than anything, the faithfulness that God has when we are willing to kind of step into these these invitations that he gives us. Because, you know, a calling is nothing more than an invitation from God to be used by God. An invitation from God to be used by God. That's all it is. And depending on how we respond to that invitation will determine often what our life looks like and what type of impact we'll have in the world and for the kingdom of God. We, we sang this morning praying that God would build his kingdom here. Build your kingdom here. And there's a line in there. And, you know, I have to uh, admit, whenever we do a new song, we kind of read through it and we say, okay, is this song true? Is it, it, are the words right? Is this... Is this the kind of thing that we as a church should be singing? And there's this little line in there that says that, that we are the church, we are the hope on earth. And at first, my gut response was a little bit of a pause. I thought, well, Jesus is the hope of earth. The gospel is the hope of earth. God is the hope of earth. But then I remembered. I remembered that Jesus came to fulfill a mission, and the night before he went to the cross and And before he was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, uh, he told his disciples, I'm giving you this mission now, that the church is going to fulfill this mission that I began. And the miracles you've seen are nothing compared to the miracles that you will see in in the days and the age to come. And we're living in that time where God is working through the church. And so we don't want to miss sight of the role of God. Everything that we do, that we do well, that has impact for for, uh, for time, over, over generations even, and for eternity, has to be empowered, led, and governed by God. But he chooses to use us to do it. And so each one of you in this room will, will have an invitation that God extends, an invitation that you can decide what to do with, an invitation from God to be used by God. So today we're going to look at the book of Jonah. If you have your Bible, I invite you to open it up. We're going to read through most of it. It's a pretty short book. Uh, you might miss it. So, you know, in the, in the Old Testament, the Minor Prophets, you've got uh, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. And in, in this Bible, it's, you know, one and a half, two pages long. You know, it's really short. And if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of these from underneath a seat nearby, and it's on page 925. Of course, you can grab your phone or tablet as well and open up to Jonah. Now... You guys, have you heard the story of Jonah? No? Yeah, it's not really one that we hear growing up or anything like, you know, it's not a very interesting story. Just this guy who is called to do something by God, he refuses to do it, and then he gets eaten by a huge fish. Or as when I was growing up, it was a whale, but I think somewhere along the line, even the the, uh, Sunday school curriculum authors wisened up that it's a big fish, not a big whale, but... um, it's this crazy story, but I think a lot of us, we, we, if we haven't read the book, we, we just know that part of it. 
We know that little story of Jonah being eaten by a big fish or Jonah and the whale, and, and we don't necessarily know what's going on there. So let me give you a little bit of background, and then we're going to read through this and kind of identify what God wants us, hopefully, to see and learn and then put into action, faith in action, just from reading the story about a prophet named Jonah. So I don't know if, how well you can see that, but uh, this right here, that's where the nation of Israel is. So we're looking right here in the Near East to the Middle East here. Babylon and Nineveh, which we're going to hear about in the story, Nineveh is part of the Assyrian Empire. You've maybe heard of the Babylonian Empire. This is modern-day Iraq. So right here, Iraq, um, and then again, Israel. So Jonah was living in Israel. He was living in Gath Hefer, which is very close to Galilee, where, uh, uh, where Jesus was from. And, and he was called by God to go and share a message to the people in Nineveh. Now, Nineveh, again, is part of, it was the, eventually the capital of, of Assyria. So it's part of this Assyrian empire that at the time was growing in power and influence and strength. And this was, a, this was an empire that was not necessarily kind to anyone that was not Assyrian. <laughs> so they basically, as the word empire suggests, were taking over the entire area. They're taking over the known world, so to speak. And so Nineveh was an enemy of Israel. And God told Jonah to go to Nineveh and warn them that he was bringing his judgment. And Jonah thought, hmm, that sounds like a really horrible idea. So I'm going to, instead of going north and east, I'm going to go south and west to Joppa. And I'm going to get on a boat and sail as far away from Nineveh as I can. And I remember as a kid thinking, oh, he goes, in, he goes on a boat and he sails in the opposite direction, not realizing that you can't actually sail to Nineveh at all because it's just this big uh, plot of land. So not only was he not going in the right direction, a boat wouldn't even take him there. He's basically thinking, I'm going to guarantee that I'm not going to Nineveh. And, and I think most of you know the story. God had other expectations for him. But before we read about that, one more thing, just to kind of give you a sense of where we are in time, is if, uh, if this is when Jonah was living, 786 to 747 B.C. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because this is just a mere 50 or 60 years before Assyria conquers Israel. So Israel falls to Assyria in 722 or 721 B.C., and it's just 50 or so, 60 years before that. We don't know the exact year, but during Jonah's lifetime that he was going to these same people who would later conquer Israel and trying to warn them about God's judgment and wrath. And it, so you might understand why God may not want him, I mean, why Jonah may not want God to ask him to do that. Can you appreciate that? Um, you know, how many of you have had in your life, God, I'll do anything for you except that one thing. What, what, have you, has anyone ever done that? What's the one thing God then asks you to do? That very thing that you said, God, I'll do anything except that one thing. And as a pastor, I really strongly urge you, never tell God the one thing you don't want him to ask you to do because it will be next on the list. So, and then, and then you see uh, it's the Babylonians who later beat the, defeat the Assyrians and the Babylonians are the ones who, who captured Jerusalem in the 500 BCs. 
And that's what led to the whole study we did this summer. That's Nehemiah and Ezra, the restoration of Jerusalem, the restoration of the temple. That all came after what we're going to read about today by a couple of hundred years. So that just kind of puts this in historical context and some, um, even some theological context for you. So this is bothering me. I don't know if that's bothering you, so I'm just going to switch over here. So if you would, open up to the book of Jonah, and let's read this together. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, and where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. Does this story remind you of anything in the New Testament? The story where Jesus is out on the water with the disciples, and God sends a great storm, and Jesus is asleep in the boat? Jonah is going to be what we call a type or maybe an anti-type of Jesus, meaning that he is kind of foreshadowing what we're going to see in the life of Jesus. But for Jonah, it's, you know, he's not Jesus. We're going to see that. We've already seen it. He's running from God, right? He's definitely not Jesus. So he's down asleep, and the captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. By the way, I don't recommend casting lots as a very effective tool to determine these things, but God uses it. The lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord. Now, we got to remember, he's not just saying, I worship the Lord. Like we, you know, when you see all those capital letters, they've all been praying to their gods. And he's saying, I worship this God called Yahweh. That's what we translate as Lord here. I worship Yahweh. So he's naming the God he worships. And he is the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now, in ancient Near Eastern culture, the idea of the sea for most people, was an idea of chaos and death and destruction. And it's not hard to understand why, given the probably rudimentary ability they had to navigate the sea, to know when storms were coming. Uh, you know, obviously, they could you know, navigate by stars and the sun and things like that. And we're just talking about the Mediterranean Sea. But you don't know when a storm's going to come up and basically destroy you. And I remember uh, uh, not too long ago hearing a story uh, we all heard a story, I think, was, was it um, from Pastor Andy about how he went out on the water and then a storm came up very suddenly and he was so scared to get back because it just caught him off guard. Imagine no weather forecast, no satellites, uh, no way to tell when that's going to happen. The sea is a tumultuous and dangerous place, right? And so for God, Yahweh, to be the God of the sea, and the land, that means he's the God of chaos and the God of safety, right? 
and this freaks these sailors out. They don't like dealing with that kind of God. They like their gods that they worship that are all the way over on land. They don't like this God of chaos. It's very interesting how uh, the God of the universe is also the God of chaos. So this terrified them, verse 10, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running from the Lord because he had already told them so. By the way, when they asked him what his job was, he would have had to confess, well, I'm actually a prophet. Where do you come from? I come from Israel. Who do you serve? I serve Yahweh, the God of the heavens, the earth, and the sea. And I'm running from him. So he said, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? He's a prophet. He should know. He says, pick me up and throw me in the sea, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Remember when Jesus is woken up and they say, Jesus, we're going to die. Don't you care about us? He says, why are you so afraid? And he gets up and he rebukes the storm. The power of God, he calms the sea. Jonah gets up and says, actually, I'm, the, I'm at fault here. If you throw me in the sea to kill me, then the sea will calm down. But the men, they don't want to do that. Instead, they do their best to row back to land. But they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. And they cried out now to Yahweh, to the Lord. You see that? Please, Yahweh, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Yahweh, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, to Yahweh, and made vows to him. So here you have Jonah. He's refusing to answer the call of God. And in his refusal to answer the call of God, he leads an entire boat of hardened sailors who worship other gods to faith in the true God. So his missionary journey has already become quite successful against every desire that he's had to be on it. Just something to note there. The prophet of God is being disobedient, and the heathens are being obedient and worshiping the Lord. So they throw Jonah into the water, and the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Does that remind you of anybody? Jesus in, buried in the, in the tomb for three days, just like Jonah was in the fish for three days. And from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord as God. And he said, I, in my distress, I called to the Lord, to Yahweh, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. By the way, this language, from the realm of the dead, um, he's going to use more language that evokes for us imagery of, of death, of decay, of destruction. Once again, a symbol, or an anti-symbol, if you will, of Jesus Christ who is to come. Verse 3 of chapter 2, You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. It sounds like he's been buried, right? 
But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and I love the imagery of the Bible, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. (laughs) It could have just said, it let him out on the shore. The fish opened his mouth, and, and Jonah walked out onto dry No, he vomited Jonah onto dry land. Love it. That's chapter 2. In chapter 3, now Jonah goes to Nineveh. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, strangely enough, and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it, probably meaning that to, to go to all the different places and preach this message, it took him three whole days. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued to Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now, by the way, some people have read this and and they've thought that is the most ridiculous thing they've ever heard. Animals putting on sackcloth, you know, forcing the animals to fast before God. And actually, this, was, this little paragraph here was often given as a reason to justify the claim that the book of Jonah is not historically true, that it's a made-up allegory to teach uh, the, you know, the people of Israel about God's love, maybe, for the distant nations. That was all until, in the last 30 years or so, they discovered some ancient uh, tablets that actually described animals being wrapped in sackcloth as a, as a sign of, of repentance. That it's very rare, but there, were, there are some other cases where this absolutely happened. Um, it does seem a little hyperbolic, but hey, if you are afraid that your entire nation, your entire city is going to perish and be destroyed by a God, wouldn't you go overboard? Maybe go out of your way to be extra careful to let God know Hey, we got your message, and we're going to do something about it. So now Jonah's missionary journey has become even more successful. First, an entire boatload of sailors, literally, put their faith in God, and now an entire city puts its faith in God. Do you have a question? Oh, why sackcloth? Oh, it's just really uncomfortable. And it's not very pretty. 
And so it's basically a way of showing that you are in mourning, that you are sad, and that you are not even willing to be comfortable in your current state. You're welcome. Fasting is the same kind of thing. It's kind of like telling other people, I'm so sick-hearted, I can't even eat. Right? So it's these outward signs uh, of your mourning, of your repentance, of turning from where you were. So God relents. His second aspect of his missionary journey, very successful. Jonah is the worst missionary in the history of missionaries, and everyone he talks to comes to Christ. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty, it's pretty incredible. And then look at this. Most missionaries would be doing a happy dance, but Jonah, this seemed very wrong, chapter 4, verse 1, and he became angry. Can you imagine... If you actually were a missionary and you went to some foreign land and let's just say you're out in the tribe somewhere and the whole tribe comes to faith in Christ and you're like, Lord, I knew it. I knew that was going to happen. Why did you make me come here? Or imagine going to a modern city and the entire city puts their faith in Christ and all you can do is fume about it. This is not right. This is wrong. That's Jonah. Jonah is a horrible, horrible person. <laughs> you do not want to be friends with this guy, right? Evan's going to be his friend. He needs a friend. Oh, so he prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? You have to read it like that. Isn't this what I said? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew you were gracious and compassionate, God. I knew you were slow to anger and abounding in love. I knew you were God who relents from sin and calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. I mean, first of all, what's the personality type of this guy, Sarah? Like, he's so overdramatic. My goodness, total drama queen. But he is angry at God for being compassionate, gracious, abounding in love's slow to anger, relenting to sin calamity. By the way, all the exact traits that Jonah was grateful for when God provided this for Israel. Such a hypocrite. Such a double standard. He only cares about himself and his people. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Interestingly, Jonah does not answer this question. (laughs) Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city, and there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. So they had 40 days. They've got sackcloth, and even the animals aren't allowed to drink the water. Everyone's crying out to God. And Jonah goes, I want to see what happens. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Now, first of all, this is a little weird. Jonah builds a shelter to sit in its shade, and then God provides a plant to give him shade, 
And then the plant dies and Jonah sits in the sun with the scorching heat. I don't know exactly what's going on there, but I just want to say, even if, even if that shelter blew over, you know, I don't know, Jonah is so petty. He's so petty. He's like, Lord, you took away my shade, and I don't like it, and I want to die. And God says, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plan? This question Jonah answers. Now, think about it this way. Well, let's look at his answer. It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. It really is crazy, right? He says, it is right for me to be angry. And the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? God says, you say it's right to be angry about this plant that died, but you don't want me to be concerned about a whole city with 120,000 people in it dying, and all sorts of animals. So he's got Jonah, right? If Jonah had said, no, it is wrong for me to be angry about this plant, then God would have said, you're right, and it's wrong for you to be angry about Nineveh. By the way, if God ever asks you a question, it is a lose-lose scenario if you want to try to beat him, but it's a win-win scenario if you try to agree with him. There's no way to out-argue God. So Jonah loses. The book ends. It's in some ways a very unsatisfying ending because what I want to have happen is for Nineveh to have a big party and for Jonah to be sulking off to the side watching the party, and then God putting him back in the fish and sending him home. That's what I want to see happen. And for that fish to vomit him up back uh, at Joppa, and then he has to walk home smelling like a fish guts all the way to his hometown. That's what I want to have happen. But that doesn't happen. God just says, you're wrong. This matters. I love these people. That's what he says. And that's what we're left with. And, and I think in so many ways, the main theme of the book of Jonah is that God, first of all, loves all people. God loves all people. There's no one outside of God's care. Right? A hundred years after this, you know what happens to Nineveh? It gets destroyed. Their repentance doesn't last. Their evil... Uh, returns, God judges them, the city's destroyed. But for that time, those people who said, no, we're going to stop doing the evil we've been doing and we're going to put our trust in God, they were saved because of Jonah's deep faithfulness, right? No. In spite of Jonah's stubbornness. So the main point is God loves all nations. But for us today just coming off of this encouragement for us to be passionate people of God who respond to our calling, who are bold and courageous, who are generous, who are joyful, who, who can see the opportunities out there as an invitation from God to do powerful things for his kingdom work. It's a different kind of message which is this. God 
will build his kingdom. The question is, what's the process going to be like? What's the ride going to be like for you? Right? God will build his kingdom. He will do what he's going to do. He will save who he's going to save. He will judge who he's going to judge. He will do these incredible things. And the question is, are you going to be someone that he's dragging along in the process? By the way, not a pleasant thing to have happen, to be dragged by God. Or are you going to joyfully step into this? Now, I really had some hesitation starting this series with an anti-hero like Jonah. I mean, he's really just such a poor role model. But I thought, you know, let's get this out of the way. <laughs> this idea of like all the horrible things that will happen to you. And look, let, let me be clear. I'm not saying all these horrible things are going to happen to you. Jonah, Jonah's a, we have to remember, he's in a particular role at a particular place in time. And God was doing something so big that it impacted 120,000 people. So for Jonah to say no, God was like, uh-uh, not going to happen. But sometimes the invitation is really simple and really small. And it's something like this. Uh, and, and this is a, this is, I mean, I can, this could be my personal example, but it's a general example, but it very much could, it's happened to me before. God says, I want you to call somebody and make peace with them. And you say, I don't want to call that person. And you just dismiss it. And then maybe a few days later, right on your heart there again, God says, I want you to call that person and make peace with them. And you say, I, I don't want to call that person. And then God says again, I want you to call that person and make peace with them. And you say, okay, fine, I'll do it. But then you don't do it because <laughs> you don't want to do it. Is this story ringing true for anyone? And then, you know, eventually, either you do it or you don't, and either the blessing comes or it doesn't. So it doesn't always mean, in fact, it will almost never mean that you're eaten by a fish. That's, that's, that's unusual. Only one in ten people are eaten by a fish when they disobey the Lord. But it's not pleasant. It's not pleasant. And you miss out on the blessing that can come. You see? You know, when we look at the book here, God calls Jonah. Jonah flees, chapter 1. Jonah's prayer in the fish, this prayer of repentance. Right? I've seen, the, I've seen the, the, the horrible thing that I've done, and I repent. But then he goes on to preach and then gets angry that God actually did what he said he was going to do. And then God tells him, you're out of line. Right? There's, there's really no, not much redeeming there for Jonah. Even the prayer he prays um, he just seems to feel sorry for himself, and he doesn't really get the message. But this other question, what happens when you run and what happens when you obey, is one that I think all of us can appreciate and understand. Because we've all run from our calling. And we've all, I imagine most of us have also at times been obedient to our calling. I mean, if not, in some ways, you wouldn't even be here this morning. And so we, we know we know that this is something that's very relevant to our lives. Now, let me say this before we move on, because calling can be a tricky thing, because sometimes what you think is your calling is what people have told you you ought to be doing. 
There is nothing wrong in saying no to what everyone else in the world is telling you to do when they're just sharing their opinions, okay? If they're, you know, obviously like the laws, if they tell you you can't, can't kill people, you've got to do that one, right? But if they're saying, oh, you need to come over here and do this ministry, right? And you think, I have no desire to do that ministry. And then someone might say to you, well, you know, Jonah ran from his call too. Yeah, don't take that. That's what we call spiritual abuse. That's what we call guilt tripping. That's what we call, uh, I don't need this in my life. You can take that somewhere else, right? But when God is impressed upon your heart, right? When God is made clear to you, I'm inviting you to do this. An invitation from God, right? To do things with God and for God. That's a different story. And I've seen people who've lived their lives running from the call God put on their life. Okay? And it could be as simple as, you know, that phone call, or it could be something big like, you know, you know, sometimes you're just too scared to maybe start that business that you really feel like God has put in your heart to do this thing or to, to volunteer with that organization that you really feel like God put that passion in your heart. Or, you know, it's so many things. I don't even want to give too many examples because I don't want to limit it. And then we say no. Sometimes we say yes, but we do no, Right? We, we say yes, but then our actions say no. Sometimes we just say no. You know, maybe you're confident enough, bold enough to tell God, no, I don't think so. That's not my thing. You can find somebody else. But you're going to miss out. And again, sometimes it just looks like God saying, okay, well, I'm going to do it with this person over here, and they're going to reap the blessing. Sometimes it looks like God's saying, I'm going to stall this thing in your life until you're obedient, and you're not going to be able to move forward until this is dealt with, and you just feel stuck. Right? It can look like so many different ways. But what happens when you obey? I bet we could hear stories of what God has done in your life when you obeyed, when you responded to the invitation with a yes, and the blessing came. Not without hardship, Right? Not without difficulty. Remember, for the joy set before you, right? Sometimes the pathway's hard, but on the other side of it's great joy. And when we're obedient like that to the call, maybe the call is to, is to finally pursue Jesus in a way that allows you to grow up a little more in those areas that you've been stuck, become more mature, become a more faithful disciple. Maybe obedience or responding yes to that invitation means, means uh, volunteering for something. And I don't just mean volunteering for something here. Yeah, we need volunteers. Every church does. But maybe it's not even in the church. Maybe it's outside the church. And maybe there's people who are missing out on what you bring to that place. And I, I don't just mean your skills and your, your abilities and your great personality but also you bring with you the presence of the Holy Spirit and the power of God wherever you go. And they miss out on that. You know, Jonah, we, we've laughed at him today. 
because he's so silly almost in his disobedience, right? Like it's just so blatant. But we've all done what Jonah has done. And it's really no laughing matter. But the good news is two things. One, God kept giving Jonah another chance. We don't see the end of the story. I don't think Jonah was put back in that fish, taken to Joppa, and vomited up on the shore. In fact, we read about Jonah and other places in the Bible and the ministry that he had. So it seems like God wasn't done with Jonah. So the good news is there's another chance for Jonah. He, he runs away, but then he does what he was told to do. He throws a temper tantrum, but God corrects them, and his ministry's not over. But the other amazing thing is that God doesn't abandon the ministry just because you're being disobedient either. That's because God is so faithful. God is so good. The hero of the story is the Lord, right? Even if Jonah had done the right thing at every turn, the hero of the story would still be the Lord. Because Jonah doesn't change anyone's mind. He doesn't want to. He does it in spite of himself because God is at work. Imagine how much more fun, because joy matters, how much more fun it would have been for Jonah to have all those outcomes without any of the disobedience. Wouldn't that that be great? Isn't that what you want in your life? The joy that comes from seeing God at work in you and through you and in the world around you? That's what I want. I want to see God at work. I want to see God changing me and changing the world around me. I want to see lives transformed. You know, nothing would make me more excited than if some, like one person in this room left here today and thought, okay, I am going to be obedient in this thing God has called me to do. And then I got to hear about it. Not because, I mean, this is not like this is a great sermon, right? It's not like this is just some, such a powerful message that it, no, God has to be at work in your heart. But to be used in that way is amazing. But again, it's not just for people who are preaching or leading worship or you know, teaching a Sunday school class. It's, it's anything that you do, anywhere you go, you can say yes to God's invitation. You hearing that, church? Anything you do, anywhere you go, you can say yes to God's invitation. You can do it today. You will receive an invitation today for something. And you can respond with a yes. And it's just that practice, right? Building up that conditioning that when God says, will you do this? And you say yes. Will you do this? And you say yes. Will you do this? And you say yes. And before you know it, you're saying yes to all sorts of things that today you never would have thought possible. But a year, two years, five years, ten years from now, it'll just seem like, oh, well, this is just what happens when you love Jesus. You hear these invitations, you say yes, and God does amazing things. That's what I want for you, church. I don't want you to be like Jonah. I don't want you to run from your call. I want you to be obedient and say yes. Not just out of duty, but out of excitement and joy and wonder at what God will do next. So my simple takeaway is when God God calls... Don't run and then expect good results. God may still do that thing for the other person, but you're going to get swallowed by that fish and you're going to smell bad. 
right? You're going to get vomited up. It just isn't pleasant. But when we answer the call, miracles happen. It's such a simple, such a simple concept. God calls, you say yes, miracle. God calls, you say yes, miracle. And it's really not any more complicated than that. So church, I want to pray for you. And what I want to invite you to do while I'm praying is either something has come up in your mind while I've been preaching. Something has come up that God has been putting on your heart for a long time that you've been saying no to. And you didn't even need, you know, I just mentioned what happens when you run from your call and all of a sudden it was there in your head, right? You may have one of those. Or you just may know in general that this is something you struggle with. And you want to, so if, if, if you know what it is, I want you to be praying about that and asking the Lord to give you the courage and the strength to say yes. Or if it's more of a general thing, you're like, you know, I don't have a specific item, but I know I've done that. Just ask the Lord to strengthen your heart, strengthen, you know, give you fortitude of spirit that the next time he gives you an invitation, you say yes. So that's what I want you to do while I'm praying. And what I want to ask you to do tomorrow when you get up and you're taking some prayer time with the Lord or you're on your way to work, you're in the car, you're on the train, whatever it is, you've got that little space. Just say, God, is there anything that you want me to say yes to today? And then just be open to hearing from God an invitation for tomorrow. So can you do that? All right, let's pray. Lord, Jonah is such a, uh, an easy character to kind of look down on and, and, and kind of, again, laugh at. But God, we just acknowledge today that we all have been in Jonah's shoes. We've all done what he's done. We've all responded the way he responded. We've all been afraid or angry or upset about something you've asked us to do. We got our heart's desire when we get to the core, like our truest desire in our heart, Lord, is that we would be the kind of person that would say yes to you. I'm sure Jonah, for most of his life, saw himself as a person who would say yes to you. And it seems that maybe after this moment, he became that person in truth. So God, help us to be that person. Lord, if there's anything on someone's heart today and they thought, oh, I've been putting that off or I've been saying no or I've been resisting that, God, give them that courage. Give them that discipline. Give them that whatever it is they need to follow through on what you've asked them to do. Lord, for so many of us, we just, maybe there's not a specific thing, but we know. We know our hearts aren't always in that place of yes. Lord, draw our hearts more closely to you, not by duty, um, but out of a delight of being with you and working with you and partnering with you and you partnering with us and the Holy Spirit working through us and Jesus' miracles happening around us, just to be delighted about the prospect of saying yes to you. And God, I do pray that tomorrow when we get up and we're praying or we're, we're commuting or whatever it is that we have and we ask you, Lord, what do you want me to say yes to today? Lord, that you'd speak to our hearts. Give us an opportunity to respond to this message, to this 
book of Jonah to this word that you've given us this morning. God, we believe that if you do that and we say yes, the miracles will come. Lord, my prayer is that next week we'll hear testimonies of your faithfulness, testimonies of your work, testimonies of obedience and the joy that came from it. And Lord, may that blessing, that joy be upon everyone here. Lord, we bless them. I bless this church. I bless all here with that kind of joyful interaction with you or what you've done in their lives. In Jesus' name.